Race matters. 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 to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Sharika Hellaludin. First up, we're going to be joined by Genesis and Carrie two organisers part of Anakbayan Sydney, a national democratic movement of Filipino youth who have been rallying and speaking radical truth in resistance to a new dictatorship. Coming up, you'll hear them speak to the current political climate and dangers in the Philippines, how it got to this, what they feel the diaspora's responsibilities are, and the dissonance of talking to parents and elders who have been swayed by propaganda and disinformation. Here are the two of them speaking to the critical point the country has reached. Even though the devastating impacts of martial law and dictatorship continue to ripple, they speak to how this has re-emerged with the election of the son of longtime dictator and what the significance of this moment is. A pretty concerning time for us in, in the fact that it's like a continuation of a lot of the um, oppressive tactics that have been happening um, from you know, the administration of Duterte. Politics is a family business in the Philippines. Um, political dynasties of three families for the, like, three out of the nine? I think it's six out of nine of the yeah. presidents over the past, like, 50-odd years. Yeah, have come from, like, the Marcoses, the Mahapagas, and the Aquinos. So that's quite concerning, again, that it this new election, I guess, enshrines the Duterte clan as another political dynasty um, to add to that <laughs> regime. Mm. Yeah. The Marcos has robbed billions of dollars from the people, which is still to this day currently unpaid or unreturned, um, and that their legacy includes thousands of people killed and tens of thousands of counts of torture, sexual abuse and imprisonment. And historically too, you know, there's been a movement, not just uh, leading up to Bong Bong's campaign as president, but it's been like a very silent evil of, you know, historical and cultural uh, revisionism. I mean, the first word that came to mind in, I guess, like the late 90s, I'm, I'm only just guessing that, but it's like what people called Marcos apologists. Mm. And 
then all of this, you know, talk of Marcos's era being a golden era. And, you know, it even came out of like immediate elders words, like, you know, oh, it wasn't all bad. The Marcoses did some good stuff. Um, and I think that historical context of bit by bit, people starting to forget what had happened and the atrocities of what had happened has led to what has happened today. Mm. You know, what What does it mean for us now? Well, it means that Duterte's crimes are going to be overlooked because his daughter is the vice president, vice president of this particular administration. Um, so a total lack of accountability for human rights abuses and that the Marcoses get to continue their rewriting of history and essentially wipe their debts both metaphorically and literally and that this is essentially just a continuation of these systems that really really need to change in the Philippines Um, and like the only way that change is going to happen is that if the people um, can have their voices heard and under this regime, it's not going to happen because there's going to be a continued criminalization of activists and, you know... Anyone who speaks out against the regime. Any political dissent, yeah. yeah. The new Marcos regime should remember that the people power movement ousted his father and we the people can do it again and we will do it again. People power has ousted the former regime once and there are formidable movements occurring in the Philippines and the diaspora to counteract the Marcos Jr. administration. But the risk is extremely high and life-threatening to do so. Continued criminalization of dissent and protest is not only rife, but historically entrenched. The ways in which people are targeted are elaborate and insidious, from social media surveillance to policies that are laid out to simply eradicate whole communities through violence. Here's Genesis. Supposedly, when Duterte uh, got into power in 2016, he would clean up the country. Unfortunately, the people that were cleaned up were the small fish, the people who were using drugs. Uh, there's, there's still drugs rampant in the Philippines. The people, you know, behind those big, I guess, drug syndicates and, you know, political families connected to the drug trade, they weren't affected by this so-called war on drugs. It was, you know, the common people and smaller, fri- smaller fish. Um, which Duterte so politically, uh, sorry, poetically uh, phrased as bodies that would fatten up the fish of Manila Bay. And just adding to that, it's definitely following in, t- in the footsteps of like the American model of the war on drugs in which it's literally a war on the poor. They're trying to essentially like clean up the streets, right, quote unquote. It's to clear those areas within those within those places to basically gentrify it for you know that ruling class and on top of that there's the continued practice of red tagging so criminalizing any forms of political dissent and um any criticism of the current regime is red tagged yeah red tagging is rife um and it you know targets a lot of activists um civil rights defenders Indigenous peoples, farmers. Teachers, even. Teachers, exactly. Yeah. Red tagging is branding a, an organisation or an individual um, as 
a communist um, or being associated with the New People's Army, which is like the insurgency um, in the Philippines. Um, and, you know, it. there's this immediate, I guess, image of rebels or like insurgents coming from, you know, the mountainous regions of the Philippines and you being associated with them means that you want to protract the current conflict between the administration and those uh, insurgents. It's made to alienate people from their families who, you know, suddenly become involved with political activism, you know, alienating them from their communities. Um, Yeah, and it's just definitely to stamp out dissent and stamp out activism. Yeah, and I think there's this real, like, false dichotomy of being like if you're an activist that means you're this like armed communist i.e in you know the kind of like the vision that they're the government wants to portray that means you're terrorist terrorista right um so yeah i think it's it's a really strategic tactic to dissuade people from joining the movement even when doing so would actually benefit them so it keeps people segregated and it keeps them from um well it just makes it harder for people to want to like act in solidarity within their actual social positioning um for fear of like am i gonna be red tagged yeah am Mm, i gonna and then it's also because it affects your family it affects your friends and your community so people it might affect your employment later on as well yeah yeah so it's a real fear tactic yeah we're talking to organisers Genesis and Carrie of Anakbayan, Sydney, on the corruption and violence of the Filipino regime and where their resistance and organising is focused. So why have this conversation? For one, the Australian government has a direct impact in this state-sanctioned violence. Even congratulating and wel- welcoming Marcos Jr. to Melbourne this week, Here's Genesis and Carrie to tell us more. Like, it's it's gross how safe and emboldened they feel to come to Australia. And that's because, you know, like just the other day, right, Scott Morrison literally rolled out the welcome wagon on Twitter congratulating Bong Bong. <laughs> For his electoral victory. Mm. Mm. So, Which is, you know, hasn't been announced yet mm. by the Philippines. So, And the immediate questions are like, okay, well, he's enrolling his son into the University of Melbourne, who's paying for that? Like mm. international student fees are so high in Australia. Is that other uh, tuition fees being paid by, you know, Philippine taxes? Um, uh, is what they're spending here right now, who's paying for that? Is that being paid by the Filipino people? To add to, you know, the billions that they've stolen, um, that family has stolen from the Philippines, you know, during martial law and now again obviously and still unrecovered ill-gotten wealth Mm. and that is what is so scary about if bong bong is to be inaugurated he has the chance to wipe out that debt Mm. and that ill-gotten wealth will can never be recovered if we can just draw a bit of attention to that you know the AUKUS um, that tri- it's a, tri- a trilateral security pact between Australia, the UK and the US. And, um, you know, obviously that's presented as like 
security peace and peacekeeping, you know, abroad and within within so-called Australia. But um, I think what maybe like average quote unquote Australians need to understand is that 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 further cements Australia's um, status in the imperial core and like that has a direct hand in state sanctioned violence, not just in the Philippines, but in the global ra- south. Yeah. Yeah. Like West Papua, um, Afghanistan, like uh, so many. Moving away from governmental bodies to local communities, what, if anything, is the responsibility for those who are living outside of the homeland? What even does it mean to talk about a Filipino diasporic identity in relation to all of this? What's the collective experience here? Here's Carrie and Genesis. Filipinos in the diaspora, whether you are first gen, whether you're migrant, like I, I migrated to Australia as a child, same with Jen. Um, we both migrated here as children and, you know, went through the school system here. Um, but I think something that, like, you know, that really bonds us, especially within our organising, is that Filipino isn't, like, just an aesthetic identity. It is, it's a legacy of resistance. Um, it's a political identity. It's a political, it's a very political identity. And it's not just an individual experience. It's a very collective experience. Mm-hmm. It's a collective experience because of, you know, what our previous administrations have done and have forced out the people, you know, into diaspora. Um, so, yeah, like that, I guess, legacy of resistance and DNA of, you know, revolution, as we like to say. Mm. It's a responsibility as well, because because in the Philippines at the moment, like, you know, as we were talking about, red tagging is rife. So I feel like us diaspora Filipinos, not just in Australia, but all over the world, because we are literally everywhere. Um, it's our responsibility to use the privileges that we've been afforded, like on stolen land, mind you. So I think it's like the least we can do to, you know, amplify the struggles. Um, these are the our families and, you know, this our is where we come, our community, yeah. Our bloodlines. Yeah. It's our legacy. Yeah. And I think that can yeah tie back into us uniting with the Filipino masses because we share more commonality with them than those supposedly in power and that w- and that's always the way that it's been we share that commonality with them and so our responsibility as diaspora is to make sure that because they don't have the opportunity or the accessibility or the safety of amplifying that voice of resistance that falls on us. So how do you begin to amplify and hold these conversations within families back here? What's at stake, especially if there's disagreement and discordance in your own home? Yeah, it's really hard. Like, I I have, um, like, a big generational, intergenerational gap within my family, um, where I I think there is so much trauma around those years that a lot of the stories were never handed down. A lot of them were never shared and, and maybe like never even understood by the people that lived through it themselves because, you know, like similar to Jen, like 
my family back in the Philippines, in that generation, in that era, they grew up um, in poverty. Like, you know, it was a hard, that it was a hard life. Um, my Lola, like, you know, what the little I do know of her, I know she like worked like three or four jobs, um, you know, like cleaning, cleaning rich people's homes and whatnot, um, which I think is such a common thing, right? And why so many of us did end up here because somewhere along the line, our parents, you know, went overseas to try and support themselves and the families back home. So um, I think that gap for me almost feels like widened now because because of this silence and like, you know, my mum is not a political person at all. So she, her, like generally the thing that she says to me is like, you know, like the Likadu situation, like don't, don't get involved. <laughs> like, um, so even our organising with Anak Bayan, like I don't tell her a lot of that because like there's almost no point in a way, like, I don't know, maybe that sounds disillusioned and maybe later on down the track there'll be space for that to evolve in a different way. But for the moment, like, I think what's happening, yeah, it's that kind of widening of that intergenerational gap. But then it's interesting because in the Philippines, um, I almost think an almost like a reversal of the situations happening because a lot of the the elders are the ones that have their, you know, first-hand lived experience with martial law and whether or not they are comfortable to speak on that they carry that within their hearts and it's in their soul it's in their minds every day but those like the youth obviously like weren't alive or you know some of the older older youth (laughs) um, (laughs) probably don't remember what it was like and like that's been part of their disinformation campaign the Mm. Marcos Duterte um strategic campaign of like historical revisionism was you know like as I think some people know but just to like I guess shed a bit more light on it now it's like they targeted people on social media they refused to engage in political debates um and just yeah kind of campaigned to an audience that they knew yeah didn't have those memories And because of the way that the education system is also so revised, um, you know, textbooks glorify or like they just kind of like gloss over what happened in in martial law um, and like paint the Marcoses out to be, I guess, aspirational. You know, like it's this big narrative that I think it's really scary because we always talk about like, you know, how the youth is the future. They're the ones that are going to be making decisions. Um, what happens when they're disconnected to their history? Silencing, cultural disconnect, violent vigilante forces, the grasp and far-reaching devastation of the Marcos dictatorship will continue to traverse from time and place. The consequences are dire and calls to action are urgent. So what does solidarity in these moments look like? How does Anak Bayan come together? 
Where can there be a turn towards hope and revolution? If you're angry, um, know that for sure you're not alone. There are people out there doing the work and people who have been doing the work for decades. Um, Anak Bayan isn't just like a youth organisation by itself. Mm. We have so many beautiful elders around us who have been in the work, in the movement for so long. There is so much to learn. Um, Get organised and mobilised. I mean... It sounds like, you know, like a, like I'm trying to sell you something, but I really am not. We're selling you hope. And I think, like, getting organised with people who you have a network with and, like, I don't know, it just it makes, it makes you feel a lot less impotent and it does make a difference. Like, it's hard work, um, mm. but being part of a network also means that you can step back when you need to and you know that someone else is going to step forward. The Filipino diaspora is the fifth largest migrant community community in so-called Australia. In, and the Australian government, instead of using your taxpayer dollars for social welfare initiatives, education, health care, it's being used to fund the killing of farmers, activists and Indigenous peoples in the Philippines through these regimes. Um, Australia is... So-called Australia is an imperialist in the Pacific, if you don't know that already. Mm-hmm. And being silent or not standing in solidarity with us actively, you, si- you side with, your, with that imperialist or like, what is it called? You side with the oppressor, like yeah. neutrality. And this solidarity extends beyond the Filipino diaspora Anak Bayan's work is necessarily intertwined with the collective liberation of occupied peoples everywhere. Here's Carrie and Genesis speaking to this. Long live international solidarity. The people united will never be defeated. So I guess that's how I can summarise mm-hmm. why Anak Bayan is involved in First Nations justice, is involved in, you know, was involved in the Nakba Day commemoration why we'll be involved in, you know, upcoming events with other migrant groups. Mm. And I think it's like, you know, um, oppression anywhere is oppression. Like imperialism anywhere is imperialism that we need to stand against. Um, what's that saying that's like, you know, no one no one is free until we're all free. And, yeah. you know, I'm probably paraphrasing that, but it's so true. And really, like, all of this is heavily connected. Amidst this continual rewriting of history, what kind of stories must be protected and empowered now that there is a historical revisionism happening in real time? And how do you preserve these stories with care and trust? Should we be telling these stories? Like, Mm. I think 100%. There are certain protocols of care Mm. that we need to, Mm -hmm. like, You know, and I think we're working that out as we go. Um, And that's maybe like we're going to fuck up sometimes. And and that's okay, I Mm. think. Like, but it's it's doing that work. I Mm. think it needs to be done. And there's, you know, there are so many people that are doing all kinds of amazing things. Like activism doesn't look any one way. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, we've got the Caps who are doing, continuing that legacy of theatre, right? Mm. Like of, you know, telling those stories that, like especially in the narrative that like lie of white Australia don't have a place on stages here in this Mm. country but they're carving out those spaces and I think that's really important. Mm. Our call will be if like another call to I guess anyone listening out there 
is if you have in information about martial law or you have stories, like preserve them because there is a there is a scary wave coming in the Philippines. Carving out space to speak the truth and preserve histories and stories before they're lost. The many ways to resist. Thank you so much to Anak Bayan activists Genesis and Carrie for speaking to their collective work amidst the tumult and continuous devastation occurring in the Philippines right now. If you want to learn more about Anak Bayan Sydney or how you can support their work, we've linked their details in our show notes. That is all for Race Matters this week. I'm Sharika Hellaludin. You can listen back to episodes of Race Matters at fbiradio.com slash race matters. 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 Race Matters.